Welcome to the Yang Gang Roundtable, an ongoing conversation on poverty, basic income, and electoral politics. I'm here with Angelo, Distan, Faye, Jacqueline, Jeremy, and Sheridan, and we are having an open discussion on those topics and uh, relevant news topics that are happening right now that relate to them and our own lives that in ways that relate to them. So, uh, sorry for interrupting, Jacqueline. Uh, please, could you give a context for what you're talking about and then resume talking about it? Well, we were talking about everything from the guy uh, where I live getting admitted to the local ER for giving himself a UV light probe enema uh, in following uh, Dr. I mean, President Trump. Wait, wait, a, a UV enema? Well, uh, he shoved a light probe up his butt and couldn't get it out. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, so what does that have to do with basic income, electoral politics, and politics? Okay, you can afford and, a textbook like, on anatomy. Well, and then Jeremy and I were kind of talking about, you know, how the, the mishandling of the whole thing. And I was talking about what I was working on for the past two weeks of trying to get um, my law, the lawmakers in my state, as well as I reached out to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to let them know that Congress's response to helping the poorest of the poor who are on food stamps, who have no income at all, but they have food stamps to buy food, um, how their their idea of help was to just increase their food stamp reward. But as what I've experienced myself as somebody who is disabled, poor, living in a rural area, no car, um, you can't use your food stamps to buy food during this crisis because, you know, a lot of the stores are um, only allowing people to do curbside pickup. But yet the curbside pickup services, you have to first order your food online, pay for it in advance, and those platforms do not allow do not allow you to use your EBT card, so you can't do curbside pickup, and you can't use your EBT card for Fresh Direct or Instacart or even Amazon in most states. So what we're looking at here, and this is what I've been working on all week, is a a colossal problem of you know some of the most vulnerable people literally being left to starve because of not being able to use the food stamps that our government, quote-unquote, helped them with. Um, and uh, yesterday, you know, we, we were able to get, you know, our, our grandson, who is the only one in our family that has a car, and he's helping his mom who doesn't have a car, his sister who's a single mother who doesn't have a car, and, you know, around that, me and my husband who don't have a car anymore. Uh, to try to just get to medical appointments, get to the supermarket, and for us to get to the supermarket, with me being immune compromised as a diabetic and over age 50, there's only four hours, a four-hour window in the entire week that is semi-safe for me to go into the store to use the food stamps I have left over on my card uh, before we actually lost our food stamps um, that I wasn't able to spend on food. And those are two hours, uh, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning, and two hours again, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on Thursday morning. Those are the only hours at two stores that are available. You know, and I have to go in, in person to use the food stamps. So, um, you know, there's people who are even worse off than us that didn't even get a COVID check. Uh, who have food stamps on their EBT cards that they're unable to use. They, you know, 
are unable to, to buy food because these other platforms will not accept the EBT card. And yet they can't get into the stores either because you're rural poor and don't have a car. You're immune compromised and you can't go into the stores and you don't have a car. Uh, and it's just a nightmare. Uh, or the stores have decided to take it on their own authority to exclude in-store shopping altogether and do just curbside pickups or delivery, which, again, don't accept the EBT card. So, you know, there was a whole lot of money spent uh, in response to this corona thing to supposedly help the least of these by increasing food stamp benefit amounts temporarily. But that's, that's money that was not well spent. It was wasted because if you cannot use the food stamps to buy the food, it's rather pointless, isn't it? When there's no one to trade with. Yeah. So, I, I mean, and it's an issue that I've been trying to get signal boosted because it's a, it's a significant problem that isn't getting the attention that it should. And if anything is a glaringly obvious case for why we need UBI and we need to look at how unhelpful a lot of these so-called helpful means-tested programs really are, you know, this is it. This is it. You know, and you've got the whole um, issue where, you know, and Jeremy and I were talking about this of, you know, the, the push to, you know, force people to go back to work which is going to, which is actually being raised, I think, to derail and thwart our attempts to get a UBI implemented, even on a temporary level, because you know they know that once the camel, the UBI camel, puts its nose in the tent, the whole camel's going to follow, and we're going to have UBI permanently, and they don't want well, that. Yeah, I completely and, agree, Jacqueline. I agree too, and the thing is, is that they realize just how bad off we are right now it's like they know they fucking know but they don't realize that asking people to reopen is just going to skyrocket our death count and make everything so much worse it's gonna be a replay of the spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919 except it'll be worse by an order of magnitude um because covid is uh, probably uh, from what I've read about it um, and researched about it, COVID is a lot more deadly than the H1. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think the Spanish flu was like 3 to 5%, and mm -hmm. this is like 5 to 10% fatality rate. Yeah. And as is already, we've got hospitals being overwhelmed. I mean, come on, they're putting, they are putting, they're hauling out corpses of COVID victims and putting them in refrigerated trucks. Um, you know, at, at sooner and faster than area funeral homes can pick up a maximum of three to five bodies, you know, per trip. You know, uh, it, it's like all of the um, mechanisms that we have in place for processing the dead are taxed to the limit. And if anybody mm -hmm. was really paying attention, the same thing happened in China where um, even though the, their official um, media arm was, like, not allowed to really, you know, talk about this, people in the trading community found this out when they were looking at the number of uh, casket makers and crematorium parts makers 
that were being deluged with orders from crematoriums in China because of the um, the body count just by sheer numbers was taxing the resources that they had available uh, to deal with this. And if we get a second wave, um, people are complaining about their stock port- portfolios being in the turret now. That's nothing. <laughs> that's nothing. And that's why I was a little irritated with uh, Zoltan Isvan. Um, because I, I don't think he really understood, you know, what's, you know, if he, if he thinks the economy is bad right now with the lockdowns, that's nothing what's going to happen if we get a second wave of this shit. And that's why UBI is necessary. And this whole idea of, you know, forcing people to go back to work. What we should be doing is encouraging and promoting as much automation as possible and getting UBI into everybody's hands yesterday. Not food stamp benefit raises, you know, not not these garbage means testing programs that end up excluding more needy people than they help. Not, Not food stamps that you can't use because you can't go to the store but yet you can't use your food stamps to buy your groceries on through Instacart or Fresh Direct or even through the store's own curbside express services. You know, we need UBI, period. That's what we need. And, and we need to not, you know, tell, you know, get, Congress needs to understand that they cannot dilly-dally about this. Well, tell them to get their asses back to work because they're on vacation again. Well, I, I literally called my representatives saying that exact same thing like a day or two ago because it's just absurd that they're extending their paid vacation again. I have called my reps once to twice a week and written letters to them once or twice a week every week since this shit started telling them, yo, UBI, yo, UBI, get your ass back to work. UBI, UBI. Oh, by the way, bail out the fucking postal system so we don't fucking have any problems getting our shit. Hi, um, just on. I've never actually had a podcast with you before. My name is Faye. <laughs> Hi, Faye. What is is that your name, Diston? It's the alias I'm using for purposes of anonymity. I see. Okay. Um, I, I live in Trumpville, Montana. I don't think we did the introductions yet. Shale just turned on the bot. Okay, we well, I'd love to we did not get do some introductions because I've never actually met one of the people that we're talking with today. That sounds good. Um, why don't we start with you, Angelo? Is Angelo here? Has Angela stepped away? All right. Ariel. Ariel. Yeah, sure. What's up? All right. Good, good. I thought I was just <laughs> on strike two there. Okay. <laughs> so if you would, please. What? My Twitter handle? Yeah, just say I'm Ariel. I'm, I'm Ariel. My Twitter is Ariel's Armada. Oh, yeah. I'm Ariel. My Twitter is Ariel's underscore Armada. And, if and you, you can say find me on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, revolutionary Thinking. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you the whole time, but yeah. Yeah. This time. Okay. 
Uh, I'm Dizdon. You can find me on Twitter at Dizdon Plays. That's D-I-S-D-O-N-N Plays. And I'm a Twitch streamer, speedrunner, and charity organizer. There you go. There's the Dizdon elevator pitch, Faye. What do you think? <laughs> wow, that's cool. Where do you live, Dizdon? Uh, Trumpville, Montana. Awesome. <laughs> originally, oh. originally from Minnesota, but my wife got a teaching job out here, so we moved. Okay, and and your wife teaches. That's awesome. Um, my name is Faye, and you can find me at Palestine Faye. Whoops, Palestine Math. <laughs> um, so I live in East Texas, and uh, would you say that your area is a bit uh, rural out there, Diston? <laughs> Um, I live in a town of about 150 people, and the town that has the grocery store has about 500 people. So, yeah, very, very rural. It's an even smaller town than mine. <laughs> My town probably has, uh, I would say, maybe 19,000 19, people. Mm -hmm. uh, Jacqueline, should we uh, introduce you? Uh, yeah, I'm Jacqueline Homan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jacqueline Homan. Um, and you can, uh, follow me on my Patreon, 99 Reasons Why, and, um, I get all over, like, horseshit, writing and activating, active, yeah, activating <laughs> for UBI, uh, so I, I write all over the place, Twitter, Facebook, Quora, Medium, everywhere. Thank you, Jacqueline. No, you Cora. answer questions on Cora. Oh yeah, when when I when they're when they're not pay questions that are really really, shall we say, tax my emotional capital limit. <clears throat> you know, like questions that are not, you know, disingenuous. That's cool. I remember the ten-hour Q and A from uh, Andrew Yang. <laughs> Uh, so we introduce you now, Jeremy. Hi, this is Jeremy. Uh, you may not hear me much during this podcast, but I will be working behind the scenes. Uh, if you want to tune in and see what I am doing, you can find our live stream at twitch.tv slash Roundtable. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at JeremySammons1, and that's S-A-M-M-O-N-S, and the number one. Thank you. Jeremy's our assistant producer. He's keeping our Twitch stream going and, uh, just like he said, helping out with some technical and research stuff. And thank you, Jeremy. And uh, Sheridan? Uh, thank you, Sheo. I'm Sheridan. I'm a small business manager here in New Mexico, and I'm very happy to be discussing UBI today on May Day, the general strike across the nation. Well, thank you so much for reminding me. It slipped my mind, and I, I had made a point of it to to talk about the general strike. I'm sure we will, but I'm I'm glad you reminded me. You're very welcome, Shale. Thank you. And I, as Sheridan said, I'm Shale. I'm the producer of this show. You can find me on Twitter at S H A E L R I L E Y. Thank you, Faye. Thank you for reminding me to do the introduction. So where were we? Uh, well anyway I we were talking about the UBI is better than the means tested thing. If you look on the right uh, in the chat, you can see the letter I sent to Steve Scalise.
Feel free to read it. Oh, yes. Uh, Steve Scalise has been denouncing Nancy Pelosi's timid uh, consideration of a minimum guaranteed annual income. And he claimed it as a overreach of the Democratic Party to push socialistic uh, ideology during a crisis. To which I would say... He is a Republican senator, I believe, but right. I would immediately rebut that with, yes, but you're actively encouraging people to get back to work during a crisis. <laughs> I call I called him uh, Numskalise, so that's just me. That's a really good uh, nickname. <laughs> so I wanted right. to um, I wanted to mention that uh, before we. <laughs> go straight into it that when i was listening to jeremy say that he we weren't going to hear from him very much during this uh thing i was like darn it he has the best radio voice ever <laughs> i wish i could hear more of his voice <laughs> all right well uh, for you Faye, i will try to chime in every <laughs> thank you so um i i put up uh, the link to that general strike you see that home general strike? If you click on that, you can find out how you can support the general strike and what it's about and what the history is for people who might be interested in um, participating. Uh, that's, I guess, I don't know. People can't really click on the link in the Twitch stream, but there it is. There's the general strike page. And, and then right sure. below that, I put the UBI center, okay, dot org slash COVID-19. And that takes you to a wonderful page that um, tracks all the different emergency cash transfer proposals during this COVID-19 crisis, you know, as a relief. Those are incredible resources. I didn't even know about the uh, Consolidated UBI Center. Thank you so much, Faye. This is really cool because when you look down this list, okay, it shows you what party the, the people come from and you will see Democrat and then you will see Republican and then you'll see Democrat and then you'll see Republican again, which is really exciting. I mean, I can't think of a more unifying, uh, you know, policy than this one. It's, it's like, um, you know, um, was it Paget had just had that, uh, talk with that Trumper for Yang guy and, that like that Trumper for Yang said that he'd vote for Biden if Biden uh, considered a UBI and Paget would vote for Trump. No, either if tr- either one said they'd vote for the other party if that other party would implement a UBI. So it's like they've stopped caring about like like that that's like their laser focus number one target and nothing else matters. So so that's a really good sign. <laughs> I, uh, if I could nutshell the general strike for our podcasting audience, it is essentially on May first today. Don't buy anything. Don't uh, go do any labor. Don't engage in the economy. Essentially, right. You day for me. So there was one proposal on that UBI center I really wanted to bring up, and it was by Joe Kennedy. It's actually. I, this is the first time I've seen it, and it says four thousand dollars a month, or four thousand dollars per adult. I was wondering that if any of you have. That means I love that because that means that um, you know we have uh, someone proposing to go farther than everybody else, and that means you know 
it's again shifting the center. <laughs> the medium proposal is no longer, you know, uh, less than two thousand dollars. Yeah, it means now at some point it's possible some of those people who who balked at uh you know a thousand dollars a month will go. Oh no no please please we'll bargain down to two thousand a month because we don't want to give you four. So it is a very good <laughs> sign it. that we're playing Love that kind it. of hardball. Yeah, so, I'm if looking I can, at the. If I can tweet. interject what they spent already on things like. Um, expanding the snack benefits when people can't even use their damn food stamps to buy food um, under the COVID situation, they could have actually added more to, you know, to uh, uh, a UBI or to at least the first initial relief amount and made the first re initial relief amount truly universal instead of the, the um, bureaucratic boondoggle that it ended up becoming resulting in a lot of people being excluded that shouldn't have been i think we're just like like it's an excuse to get jobs for like incompetent lazy people because i'm sorry like bureaucrats aren't exactly that you know uh, conservatives yeah. have had this uh, argument calling them interventionalists for decades uh, government providing a job for themselves, administrating a program. Right. And um, it, so, anyway, you guys, if you want to, you want me to read my letter to Scalise? Maybe, yes, um, please. Yeah. Okay, Mr. Scalise, I find it disgusting that you say giving the American people 2000 a month for the duration of this unprecedented crisis is akin to socialism. First of all, the government is telling us to stay home. Second of all, there's nothing patriotic about getting a disease and spreading it to your neighbors just because we have to work and put our lives in danger. Third of all, when there is more money in consumer pockets when the crisis ends, it'll help businesses around the country more because people just haven't been spending the little money they have on necessities. And last but not least, you printed trillions of dollars to give to corporations, including airlines and cruise lines, who should have been saving all their money and not be given our hard-earned taxpayer dollars that we worked for. If you want to talk about socialism, yes, we have socialism coming from the Republican Party in favor of corporations who do not earn the money they get by by being good to the customers. Rather, the government just pays them directly and they don't even need to survive. So if you want to talk about the real socialists, you and your political and corporate friends better start looking in the mirror. The American people are not asking for socialism. We are asking for capitalism that doesn't start at zero. Very nicely done, Ariel. That's brilliant. <laughs> Thanks. Bravo, Ariel. <laughs> I can only hope that he actually reads it. <laughs> yeah, that'll... One staffer goes, oh shit, he needs to read this. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm, I'm basically saying, well, you're the socialist. You and your friends are all socialists for yourselves. You, you, you know? Well, well, Who even well, cares? Well, what do, What is the problem with socialism to begin with? It's like, well, anytime someone's well, like socialism, I, mean, no, I want to no. ask them what like, so you have 
against worker-owned businesses. There's not. I'm just turning it on its head. I'm using like a tool to like you know. It's it's they they always like using a broad brush to paint everyone with a reasonable idea as that word. But when you throw it back at their face and they don't have a response for it, let's see what happens. So I actually have a very conservative grandfather who does not understand the political nuance of anything, but he genuinely believes communism and socialism and proto-socialism are all the same things. And he all, I believe that this is pretty thorough throughout the, throughout the Republican party that they believe socialism is raw distribution of resources like milk, meat, bread, basic things like that. And then you expect the people themselves to make whatever else they need or trade whatever else they need amongst themselves, which is very, very old proto-socialism. Not even communism was that basic. It's like just Stone Age living. Exactly, exactly. That's the painful misconception That's that, that uh, wouldn't, the Republican Party... Would the government would never want that. Exactly. That's, that's my point. That's the logical fallacy that we have to point out. Communism and socialism, even now, might be a slight regression, but it's not what you're thinking of. Yeah. Have you guys noticed like the, the these government websites that can hardly handle traffic? And then it's like, but I don't get it like Amazon and Google and all this. They have like millions of people on their sites like every day and we don't we don't see like that, but then like you go to an unemployment website and it's like crashing and you know, all this crap. I mean like what what is this? Well, because like, the infrastructure of the unemployment website uh is very poor because it's not incentivized to be good. You know, there's these, no there's no benefit to the the government by having a good unemployment website so they don't really care these, to put anything more than the minimum in. Whereas, these, you know, Google has to keep their website up because billions of people use it every day. Like the sure, government yeah. does like NASA and, like, you're telling me they can't even, like, you know, operate this site? Uh, I would like, love you to actually discuss uh, with scientists between NASA and SpaceX and let them show each other the massive discrepancies between government-funded programs and actual private corporations. The quality uh, difference because of the uh, profit models <laughs> are radically different. Uh, I'm the government sure. is trying to prevent inflation, while a corporation is just trying to get as many individual dollars as possible. Right. This inflation. Well, I yes. believe that um, our government agencies could do a much better job with their web stuff if they act, if we hadn't gotten rid of the Office of Technology, like Andrew Yang had mentioned. <laughs> oh, yeah. We would actually have a semi-functioning government if we hadn't gotten rid of that. We should, we should, like, have, like, an office of, like, incompetence measurement or some crap like that, you know, like... <laughs> then like, everyone yeah. would get fired. Right. You know, the, the, the dead giveaway was when I saw this thing about, about a month ago that the government was desperately looking for COBOL programmers... Right. ...to help deal with their antiquated dinosaur age. <laughs> um, wait, we should, did you really say COBOLT? Yeah, uh, yeah, we talked about yes. that a while ago. Co- yeah. Cobalt hasn't been used. I mean, 
and and I'm on the older side of Gen X, okay, who isn't a digital native, but I'm digital savvy enough to know that if you're going to set something up, you're going to set it up in Python, and you're going to dev on the freaking cloud. What's these guys' problem? If you're going to get people money, you're going to offer them the option to, you know, get a, get a, get paid your income tax refund or your coronavirus relief check so, through Venmo, uh, PayPal, and Cash App. I actually think this problem is more on how the government gets infrastructure programs uh, bidded for because the same problem happens with construction companies as well. well um, you know the old joke about Section 8 housing or rent-controlled housing? housing? It's generally yeah. because the government paid for the construction of that and they were looking at a vast majority of companies that were all bidding for those government dollars and bidding the lowest. You know, we, sh- we should just like have like a general taxpayer brain surgery fund or something like that and send them all to Biden. <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> if you if you look at the um, <laughs> if you look at the systems that are crashing, though, um, most of the time when they do crash, that's when because they have too many users um, piling in suddenly, and that's definitely what what's happening right now is the sudden influx of millions of people that were not applying. You know, they were not ready for that traffic, and anybody wouldn't be ready, even if it was Amazon and they had started out with a small, you know, if they you suddenly put an extra 100 million people on a site that was using hundreds of thousands, you know, that's going to be too much. Yeah, and that's, that's the uh, big complexity problem is, even if you have it online, it's so much simpler just to enter a bank account, your social security number, and wait for the check to hit. Exactly. But see, that would make sense, wouldn't it? I know, right? That would be cost-effective. <laughs> so yeah, these. Um, so I've also worked in an industry that was um, super. That is still super backwards, and I'm just going to call them out. The travel industry is totally backwards. In their oh technology. my goodness, I'm 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 like this close to just uprooting them. They are so fucking antiquated and cause so much CO2 emissions that are completely un- unnecessary in our internet age. Well, not only that, but their technology specifically, okay? So um, I remember working in the travel industry probably, it's been a while, you know, back in, uh, before my children were born, so let's say 2000 or earlier. Um, but during that time that I worked for them already, their technology was so far behind. They were still using like teletype terminal type of things. Okay. While everybody else is on the PC and the Apple and they, you know, like the travel agents that I worked with, they had been trained up on teletype type of things. So they knew how to put in the codes to get the um, computer to spit back at them, you know, the prices of tickets and things like that. But um, so they could book the tickets using this teletype stuff, but they couldn't actually write an email letter and that, you know, you just push <laughs> like uh, in Microsoft Word or something like that because it was too natural. Like, you know, you just type what you're naturally thinking. They're used to thinking in this uh, code system. And I think that, that that system may still even exist right now. <laughs> and so the problem is they can't, uh, it's not only just one government then, like, like in the government, we have the slowness to respond because it's massive and it's got all these different states that all have to, you know, come along with them. Uh, But you also have, um, you know, in the travel industry, a worldwide problem of technology. 
So if you've got, you know, countries in Africa that all have to switch over to every new system that they, de- that they devise, it's very hard to get consensus on that. And you can't, uh, you know, buy and sell tickets with everybody on a different system. And so it's quite difficult. Oh. And that's kind of leading into our own problem with the not only unemployment, but also the uh, patchwork system of our state laws during this crisis, uh, namely Medicaid. Some states don't even have Medicaid available for low-income people. Right, because they didn't sign up for the expansion. Uh, my state, this is how I almost died when I developed Crohn's disease. Um, in my state, if you were a poor adult who didn't have children, it didn't matter if you came down with cancer. You did not get Medicaid. You know, after a, a major medical crisis literally wiped you out and left you you know, unable to get medical care. You didn't have a job. You didn't have health insurance. Too bad. Don't have kids. Don't qualify. Um, yeah. So my state was one of the last ones that drug its feet and it had to, you know, be bitch slapped every step of the way. Pardon my French. Uh, to be hauled to the table to get on board with uh, the Medicaid expansion. And that happened just in time before, I got slapped with the type 2 diabetes diagnosis a year after almost dying from a Crohn's complication. Um, And uh, this is where, you know, this is all the result. This goes back to the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. Prior to that, SNAP benefits or food stamps and Medicaid were federal. They were an entitlement that, you know, if you couldn't afford medical care, You know, you could, if you were below a certain income, you could qualify for Medicaid, whether you had kids or not. You know, if you um, were unemployed but rendered ineligible for whatever the myriad of reasons are for an unemployment benefit check, you could get um, general assistance and you could get food stamps. But now with um, welfare reform, what happened was all that stuff was turned into block grants from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that then oversees the dispension of those block grants to the states, for the states to use as they see fit. And they don't necessarily use that money for the poor. Um, In our state, a lot of money slotted for SNAP benefits and for TANF gets plowed into um, faith-based nonprofits that teach poor single mothers how to get married. Oh, yeah, Jacqueline, that's what we have often talked about. Um, that not only the the 50, people don't realize that the 50 states are so different from one another, partly because of the way that we allow them to um, manipulate and, and handle their own, um, you know, federal benefits. So you have this federal umbrella that gives out the money, but then all the states administer it differently. And so some people in some states, you know, will 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 think of it as a wonderful program because their state is doing such a good job. And then in other states, people are like, no, we need to just tear this out because it is causing so much heartache and, and pain and anger in so, people. Personally, I think that this uh, laboratory of American law is a brilliant method of diversification to actually tease out the most effective administration of what these programs could mean. So the states that aren't doing it well should be clearly, blatantly shown as a failure, and they should adopt other states. And I'm sure this would really hurt Texas if they had to adopt California's model. 
Well, that's the thing. Is it's so, it's very strange to me that Texas believes that we're doing such a great job. When I have lived in California, and I have seen them do so much better. For example, with SNAP alone, um, I was only on SNAP in California for a short time, but I noticed several things. But well, let's just talk about one. Like um, you, I don't know about whether you can get food <laughs> delivered there. Uh, I know I can't in Texas. Okay, I can't get. Um, I can't go in and buy anything online. And I can't have anything delivered to me. But I know in California, you can actually get, um, I think that might be my mic, Shale. Um, uh, I have this uh, noisy I see laptop. that Jacqueline is, there's a green, there's a, her a eye is green when she's okay. not speaking. So I can tell there's some background noise coming through on Jacqueline's mic. But she's muted now. Thank you, Jacqueline. Um, I don't know. Maybe there was also some on yours. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, I apologize because every time I turn on my uh, mic, I've got this uh, background noise in my my laptop too. Uh, but I'm trying to get that taken care of eventually. So in um, if you're in, uh, oh, this is cool, Jeremy. I'd love to read that in a minute. But in uh, if you're in California, though, you can also get um, a SNAP program that helps you to buy food at the farmer's markets. Now, not all of the farmer's markets do it, but uh, what they do is they translate. Um, they have an EBT machine, okay? And you go to that machine somewhere in the market, and you get um, quite a bit of, uh, uh, so you can take your EBT card and buy these farm-to-market bucks, like farmer's bucks. And so you just have the farmer's bucks, and then you can walk around the market and spend them. So they're like kind of like a chits uh, system. But okay, so back Ariel, to Sheridan's please, point, uh, which mute is that your mic, you have uh, some background noise now. Sheridan, um, your point was that it, it would be nice if some of the states could learn from others, but I don't think that they are learning because well, they don't. They you don't can build in a couple you know, of ways to, for them to learn. Either a administrative feedback, ideally voting, to get more people who would be willing to change the programs um, through more local uh, journalism. But I think that more powerfully and more on message with us, a UBI, simply allowing those people to move, to just get clear their assets, get a little liquid and have money to travel and be, know that they will have money to uh, stay alive with. And they can just go to a better state. And states are incredibly reliant on population numbers. That's why a lot of these southern states have incredibly heavy um uh, marriage and childbirth and uh, increasing population orientations. You know, in fact, that's exactly what I was going to, which is the reason they're not learning is that the people who are on SNAP benefits, the people who are getting rural housing benefits or housing, you know, and all of that, we are actually bringing money into their state. And so if they can find a way to keep us here and get, get us stuck here, Right, and their their program is administered so poorly that nobody ever can climb out of the pit that is poverty. Then um, it's great for them, and and if you don't leave, right, they, you continue to bring that money into your state, and you continue to thrive off of you know this wide base of poor people. And that's <laughs> so where I get strange. into um, people who are like, "How are you going to pay for it?" Or the more uh, left people I talk to who say well, you can't just get rid of welfare programs. And I'm like, look at their administration. 
The money is still from federal government to person, but there's a middleman of a state. This is the conservative argument for the past like five decades that states make people dependent on the state. If the federal government provided a basic income, people would no longer be dependent on their state. So that's, uh, yeah, totally portable money in cash. Now that's where you, you get the control back to the actual person that you're supposedly helping. I love that. I see Jacqueline says she has a comment. Yes, I just wanted to touch on what you and Sheridan were, were saying. This is what I was trying to get across to my state lawmakers, because my state is one of the worst for offering options to SNAP benefit, uh, for SNAP uh, benefit recipients um, who are shut-ins and who literally have no way of getting food. Um, in my area, in Erie County, which is relatively rural, it's particularly problematic. And... Um, uh, you know what? When I when I see money being wasted on expending a program that's too um, punitive to use for no reason other than hey, let's just make life as inconvenient and miserable for the poor as possible. That's the whole idea behind it. That grocery delivery and curbside service is a privilege that the quote unquote undeserving poor, useless eaters don't deserve. You know, um, and but. The problem is, is that when you're putting money into expanding food stamps, instead of just saying, let's get rid of these means-tested programs and food stamps that people cannot use their food stamps to buy food, what's the point in having them? Just give people money. If people need food that week, they've got money. They can buy their stuff through Instacart or Fresh Direct or whatever. If they need to pay their utilities, they've got that covered too. If they need to buy... Uh, something to get their car fixed. You know, it's the most portable problem solving medium we have to work with. And it just makes no sense to me. Um, I would dispute anybody was actually conservative. If they defend a status quo of spending billions of dollars to keep in place a system um, that is more hell bent on um, making sure people in need are excluded than what it would cost to just, you know, cut a check that would be a social floor to everybody, that no matter what happens in your life, you will never be left unable to get food, a place to live, utilities, or transport, or clothing. Yeah. So that uh, SNAP food that I just read here from Sleepy Girl, How to Get Groceries Delivered with SNAP Food Program uh, food Stamps, I did read through it, and it shows that there are some states where you can get it done, but not Jacqueline State, and uh, I don't think mine either. Yeah. And there, if we had uh, more dynamic local journalism... I believe these problems would be very blatant in most Americans' faces of how some states are failing compared to others. Yeah, so um, I think there are some local uh, coverage that is in these small town papers that actually does, um, you know, cover some of these issues. So, for example, in my town, we have the Palestine Herald, um, I think it's called the Herald Tribune or something like that. Um, and it's a really excellent paper, but, you know, I can't even read it because I'm too poor to 
you know, get a subscription of it. <laughs> so I have to just kind of wait for things to be online or, you know, see, uh, happen to see them uh, in a doctor's office or something that's laying there. And of course, uh, sometimes our local news coverage will get picked up by a um, national paper or something like that. But very seldom, it's usually like there's been a disaster. And so, you know, they want to check in on the local people on some sort of tornado or something like that. But what about these local issues about, you know, how things are actually in the rural areas? That doesn't get picked up too often. Uh, many great um, economists have pointed out that the best way to know a society is to understand the mundane, everyday life that people have to deal with. And you will understand exactly how the culture feels. The true measure of any society is how it treats its most vulnerable, i.e. the least of these. Indeed. Yes, and that's why I like to take vacations when I had the chance to take them in the past. Um, in a way where I just go and live somewhere and be as local as possible instead of doing all the tourist stuff. And then um, while I'm there, I get to find out, you know, how do they deal with different problems? And in fact, I thought that would make a really great show. So if anybody ever wants to fund me to travel the world <laughs> and go do that with my six-year-old, I will bring back to you everything that a mom experiences with her six-year-old in these different countries. That would be cool. You know, like... Steve has, has left. left. Or, uh, yeah, just down his left because our, I guess our friend, our mutual friend, talked to him, and he got very upset, and it was about Joe Biden. I really kind of am curious about this now. I mean, I, am too. I don't blame him. The the my my own mom, who's a very proud Democrat, is kind of like, oh well, now we're going to do Biden, and I'm like, really? Of not, no. You were Warren. You were for Warren. <laughs> Like, she was exactly opposite of everything Biden is for right now. Right now. Yeah, Biden is less likely to give us a, a UBI than Trump, I firmly believe, unfortunately. And I mean, and Trump is his own monster, of course. But neoliberalism is much less likely to uh, allow for a UBI than whatever Trump's, whatever Trump's ideology can be called. Well, the thing is, is that I think he'll just sign it. I think he just likes to see his name signed, you know? You think Biden will just sign anything, you mean? No, no, I think he'll have a hard time even holding the pen. Oh, so you I... think Trump just likes to sign anything? Exactly. Okay, yeah, he does like to see his name on things, like, you know, the check that went out for stimulus. That was pretty cool. I saw yeah. some uh, PhDs lighting their letter that they got on fire, and it made me happy. I was like, yeah. I didn't People lit their check on fire? What? Uh, not their check, the uh, letter that they got with it, with, with Donald Trump's signature on it. I didn't oh, get a letter. I only got, I was looking forward to the letter. I only got a check from Dear President. I really I wanted the letter too. as well. Yeah, I was, I was actually incredibly surprised and grateful I didn't get means tested out of that check. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you weren't either, Sheridan. Um, I, it, the whole fact that there are so many people that were excluded is really troubling. And almost 40% of our population. Yes. And I, I got into it with somebody who attacked Scott Santons and Heidi Briani's who we've had on the show before, who's running on a UBI platform out in Oregon. 
uh, who they were being attacked by a drive-by asshole on the internet who attacked Heidi, accusing her on Twitter of retweeting Scott Santon's um, just to get votes. And this guy was saying that UBI is just going to, uh, the people who are pro-UBI are just out to shaft the disabled poor. And Scott tagged me uh, to come and <laughs> We had an yes. idiot spill in aisle four. Come clean up. Right? <laughs> I, I was going to say, how does that how does that hurt the disabled poor that, that they, as a person, get guaranteed cash to feed themselves and house themselves, it, it, no it matter doesn't. what? Sheridan, it doesn't. And I, I basically drilled it down for this guy like he was for, and he got very abusive and argumentative and was basically calling me uh, a rich elitist scumbag. And I said, look, buddy, I'm a poor, disabled 53-year-old woman without a car, who's diabetic, and a Crohn's patient. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Did he I, then go, well, you're white? I had a similar, similar, yeah, similar yeah, thing on Twitter yeah. happen. Uh, a person that I had just met on Twitter seemed pretty cool. Um, we have a mutual friend who had just lost his house. He got evicted because of this crisis. Um, oh so God. I tagged the Yang Gang and Humanity Forward, and I was like, UBI saves lives. I know you got some dough for this cutie. And uh, that friend said, how dare you make this a political point? And I'm like, blocked. I don't need to deal with your idiot toxicity. This friend of ours lost his home. If you aren't in a home right now, you will likely die from this plague. Yeah, if not the exposure to the freaking elements. Well, the plague oh, I assume. Okay, that might be going a little bit that. far, considering that most is not the, you know, three to eight percent even. I well, mean, like Jacqueline said, the exposure to the elements is the actual killer. If you get exposed, your body goes into virus fighting mode. If you get a bacteria, oh, that's you true. go immediately septic. That is death. Yeah, I mean, there's a high, that you know, the homeless population has the lowest rate of life expectancy um, out of every other subgroup of the population for that reason alone. Um, but, you know, this, this drive-by asshole on the internet who was just smearing Heidi Briani's and attacking Scott Santon's and you all UBI advocates, especially Yang Gang people, he, this guy had it, he called, goes by the handle JT or whatever. He especially had a hard-on against Andrew Yang, and I attempted to educate him, and I was very restrained. Shale, you would have been proud. I was very restrained. and yeah. uh, But I, I, I told him, I'm like, look, you're speaking for people, um, and you're, you're, you're taking away our voices and trying to say what's good for us. How is jumping through the hoops of means-tested programs like the SSI program, which um, doesn't allow you to have total assets more than $2,000 and forces you to get a divorce from your spouse and live on the streets and leave the marital home as a 53-year-old diabetic and Crohn's patient while you wait out a two-year appeals process to get a $700 a month SSI check. You know, how right. is that my own good? You know, and with the UBI, there's no strings attached. If I am able to, after getting on my feet and stabilized, I can then start committing some money out of that towards my own, you know, carving out my own path out of poverty. 
through different, you know, things to try and to uh, to uh, participate in that I right now don't have the income that would allow me to do it. I wouldn't be penalized. I would not lose that UBI. That would be the floor. That's that's the difference between a floor and a ceiling. Do you understand this? Do you need me to explain the difference between a floor and a ceiling to you? You know, I'm looking at I'm looking at that chart that Jeremy put up, and isn't that just heartbreaking? That life expectancy could be 45. I'm 45. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right I'm, now that that number is heartbreaking. Yes, I'm 53, and yeah, yep. That's for the U.S. homeless uh, people. For anyone who's not looking at the chart and just listening to the to the podcast. So um, I actually uh, think that uh, part of these uh, these serious problems that we're seeing right now, including the problems with democracy, in that you know we are trying to get legislators to work, they're not working. Practically everything that we talk about here really touches on the fact that our democracy is not working well, and that's why I shared earlier today a link, and because uh, it might have already uh, kind of fallen off, I'm going to put it here again. This is the page. Back in, uh, what is it, 300-something B.C., um, Plato was writing about um, the Republic and the five regimes, which he considered forms of government that um, basically would cycle into each other. And so he said aristocracy inevitably leads to democracy, which then leads to oligarchy, and then it leads to democracy, and here we are in democracy, and we think to ourselves, wow, this, you know, we are at the culmination of the pyramid. Nope, that's not what Plato says. <laughs> so he said that democracy leads right back to tyranny, okay, and then the cycle will repeat again. And so um, I feel like we're just watching this process play out, you know, and it was, here's a person who had been written, who'd written about it 2,000 years ago, and he's being proven correct over and over again. Because now, again, we've got people, you know, realizing that democracy isn't necessarily the highest form of every, every type of government. Everything I've seen this year has been really negative. I haven't seen democracy working for us. Do you guys see anything that's actually, you know, useful? Or that's honorable? a great point. No, and there's no, ever, there's no discussion of alternative methods ever. It is so outside the Overton to, to suggest any other uh, method of um, selecting leadership that, that is never well, seriously given weight. I, I want to give a heavy reminder to the main reason, and that's the Constitution and the copycat uh, levels of government. Uh, we basically have the same structure from our federal government through our state to municipalities to localities, and it's all formed on the Constitution and how it orders government into the three branches. The branch that does, the branch that makes laws, and the branch that uh, checks the laws against the people. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's like, supposed to, in theory, work, but that's not how it's working. Because well, I completely agree, because the uh, money factor is the biggest uh, bottleneck the basic income would allow so many more people to stop thinking about next week's uh, food or next month's rent, and they could actually get politically involved and donate money to political campaigns. And it would almost immediately upturn our capitalistic democracy because people would now have power. And like you were saying earlier, the reason 
the Republican Party is dragging their feet, and honestly, what the Democrats are as well, is because it's such a hesitant thing to give people that much power, especially for interventionalists who really want to maintain the status quo. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much what it is. It's, you know, um, that's where a lot of this culture of what Ariel calls workism comes from. I mean, these people are just not dealing, they're not playing with a full deck in the first place. Never mind a full deck that's, you know, from reality. I mean, people are thinking that, well, if we just, you know, end the lockdowns and force everybody to go back to their jobs, everything's going to be honky-dory. No, it won't. Half the people that lost their jobs as a result, and not just, and when I say lost their jobs, I'm not talking about just people who are W-2 employees. I'm talking about self-employed. I'm talking about gig workers. I'm talking about people who had their own small businesses like you, Sheridan, that were forced to shutter and scuttle everything after they sunk everything they had worked for their entire lives into making what looked to be a profitable business that got derailed horribly by this pandemic. Okay. I really appreciate you bringing that up. I also wanted to uh, mention to you guys that I'm now full-time on that business because my college has let me go. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, this idea that of, of forcing people to go back to work, there is at least half of the people who have lost their sources of income. We're going to say earned income, not just from jobs, but from self-employment, small business owner, gig worker that have been sidelined and do not have any bright prospects for rapid or immediate reabsorption um, into the economy once the economy recovers. And we're not sure if it's going to be a U-shaped recovery or an L-shaped recovery. And what that will depend entirely on how our elected leaders handle it. If they continue to fight against giving people a UBI, they're going to turn what could be a U-shaped recovery into an L-shaped recovery, which means that it'll be a lot longer than it took the Great Depression to recover. I we're completely agree. About decades. decades. Depending on how our... Uh, leadership handles this economic crisis, I foresee we could see the 100-year crash genuinely happen. But if our uh, government continues to inflate the markets, we may never even recognize it until it's actually on our doorstep in our communities. Because what is the 100-year crash supposed to be? I'll elaborate on that in just a moment. Uh, I despise general stock market indexes as a measurement for the government, but it is an incredible measurement for businesses because it is the combined um, combined information that is currently available is put into that price over the millions of individuals buying and selling in the market. So the 100-year crash is a uh, theoretical debt cycle that... Um, along with the general business cycle of every 10 years, we see debt uh, crashes that are just tipped off by a little thing because companies over leverage themselves because our inflationary economy incentivizes the over leverage into debt because debt is cheap and our government continually makes debt cheaper. 
the hundred year crash is the accumulation of all that being pushed aside. So it, there, the theory is that every 10 years, the crash happens, but not all the debt is fully zeroed out. And um, that little bit gets knotted over until it just cannot be knotted over anymore. So the theory is that when we started this welfare capitalism after the Great Depression and about 25 to 30, that was about the beginning of the first uh, cycle. That was the 100-year cycle there when we saw that massive crash, bread lines, people just unable to uh, feed themselves. Sheridan, so um, I think I was um, trying to lead back to our discussion about socialism and how people have this. That's okay. Um, I I hope I'm not um, missing if there's to talk about. You know, I just did a tangent on on that. I I was going to bring it back by um, describing how Plato's forms of government are the political government and the socialism, communism, or the communism to capitalism dichotomy with socialism in the middle is the economic form of government of how people actually do things and how they organize how things get done, not how people are organized like Plato's government uh, describes. Like the decision-making process is sort of uh, who gets to make the decisions and how decisions are made. That's the, the regimes that Plato was talking about versus now we're also talking about how do we build a good economic system and maybe we should talk about both of them, but let's not confuse them all the time and, you know, get all these emotions and nationalistic and tribalistic feelings involved. I completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the, they distract you. It's, it's all a distract. Well, like, they, they like to say that, you know, we have these, like, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Who gives a damn about that if, you, if, you, if you're dying? about to die like like i, I just want to get a sledgehammer and smack him <laughs> like, i wonder what happened in the 1820s and 1830s was there a crash then oh i'm well, looking at this chart together oh 1870 right and then i'm i'm, I'm look i've got the chart blown up on the screen maybe um jeremy can do that for people who are watching um and you're looking at a crash at around 1875 to 1880. Is that right? If I'm not mistaken, that was when Russia collapsed and they had their first, um, essentially, king uh, put in place, their first czar. Or it was a czar that, colla- that uh, came down. They put in a democracy at the time. It was like the Revolution of 1813. But again, it depends on what market you're talking about, because uh, even Rome had a financial collapse. Uh, Rome could be argued as the first uh, economic nation that even used quantitative easing. could also be argued that the collapse of the Roman Empire was also the first official collapse of the first global economy, because if you look at what followed that, the Dark Ages and, and how that panned out across Europe, you know, which, True, yeah, yeah, you know. At, uh, I'm looking at this chart, and I just want to point out to people that um, when you're not mathematically minded and looking at things as a mathematician, you may miss the fact that you know this is on a logarithmic scale, 
and that it skips forward suddenly from 1895 to 2000 <laughs> right there. <laughs> so I find it really interesting. Like um, it's trying, the reason they use a logarithmic scale is of course to show you the little, you know, per perturbations at the lower scales and you can see those more clearly, but you don't get a sense of just how crazy high the highs are, right? Because if you actually drew it on a regular scale, just one, two, three, four, five, all the way up, then um, you wouldn't, it would just be like a flat line down at the bottom <laughs> where all of these other, um, these other eras are earlier. Yep. And uh, what you're looking at there is an example of something known as reversion to the mean. Maybe you could uh, expound on that a bit for us. Okay, reversion of the reversion of the mean is something that's referred to in the trading community as when, um, you know, the stock markets, uh, when when the valuations end up, you know, when there's a serious pullback, and I mean a big pullback, not just like four or five clicks, but I'm talking about crashes when there's a huge pullback. And they go back to testing pre previous market lows and previous market highs at various levels of support and resistance. When valuations are not in line, you know, with, you know, economic fundamentals, you have what's called a reversion to the mean. Where they're so, you know, so um, what I think, what I'm gathering from this is that uh, Sheridan says that, well, not all the debt is forgiven, but honestly, the debt, um, I mean, if you, for, if you just forgive all the debt, that will not help because it's built into the system, and that's why you see these cycles. Right? It doesn't I matter if you start the debt at zero or at, you know, we have a, a hundred million to start with, but it's just the problem is it's going to continue to grow. It doesn't stay the same. And that's so there's this massive, yeah, passing around of the debt until somebody gets, ends up with all the debt. That's why we have the moral hazard now and the business cycle is because our entire economy is oriented towards inflation. It, it, the simple fact that money gets less valuable is what encourages debt. If we had a deflationary orientation, that would completely change both the meaning of cash as well as the meaning of debt. And companies would be incentivized to not go into debt and not over leverage themselves unless they have a very, very good profitable plan to make it worth it. Well, this is an interesting uh, idea, though. How about this one? How about we don't issue money with debt attached to it? <laughs> we just issue money like a normal, like, like in the past where governments would actually print the money. Well, that still falls into the distribution problem and uh, inflation as well over a long time. So if we did like a UBI, that would probably be the best way to just have the distribution. Um, well, for example, psychologically, well, how would that change the way that our legislators talk and everything if we didn't have a massive federal debt hanging over us? Well, that's, that's just not, that's just it. The uh, federal debt really isn't all that important, especially now that we have quantitative inf easing to infinity. The uh, Federal Reserve's balance sheets, as they have said, are infinite. They have an unlimited capacity to store debt. 
So they can literally just keep buying debt out of the system. What we need to do is start consolidating and squashing that debt by having people actually try and uh, pay it down. I think that we have a system that's so complex that it's hard to understand what the ramifications are if you change one aspect of it. So, for example, why do we need to have this federal debt that then pays people who can afford to buy it, you know, and then creates this whole bond market? The federal debt is a uh, foreign policy tool rather than a domestic economic tool. It's to allow other governments to buy... American dollars and to get a return so that we have international um, trust. So basically that, um, that China owning a lot of our debt is where they own, they own our federal debt. And through that, they're able to get U.S. dollars. Exactly. That's actually China's biggest economic play over the past few decades has been acquire other people's currency so that we can trade with them. Because uh, America politically negotiated ourselves as the economic center of the world. We literally ripped it away from China, who had held on to that for thousands of years because of their incredible land mass and population sizes. They're working on getting it back because they're they're just now starting the new OPEC. um, You know, they're starting to break that OPEC hold. And um, that was part of our strategy was that, you know, everybody had to buy their oil in U.S. dollars. But now I think Russia and China are balking at that and finally breaking away. They're strong enough to do it. And that's the big global foreign concern right now is seeing the uh, Chinese, I believe, yuan uh, become a global reserve currency and becoming a uh, uh, being able to compete with the U.S. dollar directly, not just indirectly with their economic manipulations, but directly through basically telling countries what to do. For example, they are already doing this through their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, their over-leverage of debt onto countries that those countries obviously can't really pay. Um, They fund these massive infrastructure projects like ports, airports, roads, And they also have a stipulation on these loans to these countries that if you can't pay, we repossess what is built and you can only use a Chinese company to build it. So the Chinese automatically get their money back and they also have political um, ownership over the ports or airports or whatever. And they've already leveraged this. They've already used this to confiscate an African port. So um, wouldn't you say that China has learned a lot from capitalism and democracy? Oh, 100%. Because <laughs> I feel um, like that stuff we have been very good at, and we've, we've done that to many countries, destabilize their currencies so that they end up basically on a dollar, uh, you know, on the dollar standard. And China's been doing that But on the opposite side, on the back end side, they've been doing it through debt leveraging, while America does that through equity leveraging. Our corporations go to countries and say, we'll build this factory for you. We just take a share of the profits. Yeah, I'm not seeing why that should be any worse for them to do it their way and for us to do it. I mean, essentially, we have the same control over people like 
I feel that we have uh, great control over that Panama Canal, which is incredibly important to shipping, right? If you can't get through that canal to move your goods, you're going to go all the way around, which is, <laughs> that's a long way. Yeah, the only way we can obviate that is if we could find a way to make, um, oh, what the hell is it called? Uh, the Darien Gap. Make that traversable by, by, by road. And there is no way yeah. to do that. The Darien Gap, um, it, it connects uh, Panama, which is Central America, with Latin America. Uh, it's not traversable uh, by land. Um, you know, people risk their lives coming from uh, places like Colombia through the Darien Gap uh, to get up through Central and eventually to North America. And uh, it's literally risking life and limb to do that because if, if, if you're not at, at risk of, of literally getting eaten by snakes that can swallow an adult hull, which they have those, you're risking getting shot by uh, narco-terrorists that are hiding out in the jungle. You know, Colombian narco-terrorists um, that are hiding out. So crossing the Darien Gap is, you know, literally you're taking your life into your own hands. Yeah. yeah, it's like the heart. It's like a, a a special trial for people who want to move from one side to another when they're migrating. Yeah, and it's like it's not a, a a patch of land. People think that you can just make any kind of land arable or you know build infrastructure on it, and that's not true. I mean, if you look at what the Darien Gap is, it's rainforests, it's you know uh, jungle, it's you know rivers that have anacondas in it that can swallow you whole you know uh yeah. it's yeah. you know you, you've got mudslides that can take you out in the blink of an eye that occur there and yet uh, people will brave it just to um just to go somewhere else that's really that's, interesting that's correct <clears throat> so the panama canal and then there's the suez canal now these two canals are so important and they're controlled by certain types of powers they're not controlled by, you know, um, everyone. And so that gives these people more control over the entire world's commerce than you can possibly imagine if you just don't think about it too much, you know, and you just kind of think everybody's, you know, equal player. No, there's, there's power, serious power concentrated so in controlling these places. So I want to bring it back to what you were saying about China uh, and how they do business differently than we do. Um, and I think that's a great thing to, uh, hold on to because it really identifies how we're going to see the two main survival strategy, survival strategies that we saw at the beginning of life during the Cambrian explosion play out in an economic sense because, uh, China is going to do a more central, uh, everyone focus around China approach through ownership of these ports, they're going to force these nations to essentially trade with only China. Um, okay, but uh, we're already doing a lot of that because look at us. We are doing <laughs> we're the through, ones who are doing a lot of trade with China. <laughs> as I was going to say, ourselves, we are doing that through a diversification strategy. So we are having several different companies do their own little things in the world and our own government place sanctions on what those companies can or can't do with the world. 
So we're allowing more uh, small actors rather than one central authority. And those are the two economic strategies that are going to play out. Yeah, and I actually think that China's strategy is excellent and that they're actually learning about the power, you know, power plays. They've been very patient. They've built themselves up. For the past 20 years, they've been flexing their currency, fully utilizing modern monetary theory, doing everything short of actually a basic income to their citizens. Like sure uh, uh, as I, using the uh, the or comparing it to the Cambrian explosion is it's just hilarious. So yeah, I just <laughs> I, I, I had to see like what they looked like side by side. So I posted it here in the chat. But yeah, you can see that the the growth of the Cambrian, Cambrian explosion, and then right underneath it's China's GDP. And holy shit, it's like the same fucking thing. <laughs> yep. Well, the okay. See, the thing about GDP is you issue more money, you have more GDP in a sense, <laughs> and. Well, that's actually the hysterical thing about inflation growth and why I tell people that inflation isn't isn't measuring what you think it's measuring. <laughs> um, right, because right. You, do, you can, yeah. and China has, just inflated their currency a lot. But that's not undo. I, they actually have industry and have billions of people that can economically leverage that. Um, I, that not, not to be kind of like being the wild card here, but I think like... Asian culture has so much less uh, drama in it and more analysis on uh, problem solving and getting things done and being efficient. And that's why they're murdering us. Interpersonal studies identifies this as the Western individualist orientation and the Eastern collectivist mm-hmm. orientation. Right. Where Be- because, uh, more because, Asian countries think about the whole community. Right. Well, I mean, that, that would make sense. And when you're competing on an international scale and you're so like divided at home and then you got the other side that's so um, streamlined and so together and they're they're just like operating as one unit and there you are on the other side constantly infighting amongst yourselves well like it's a no-brainer and that's why i thought like andrew yang with his problem solving and no getting into drama kind of ideas was like just you know that's that's what we need right now but but you 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 have so many goddamn idiots just yeah just Ariel you are, you are talking about one of my favorite things which is that uh, there is a difference between you know like uh, a tyranny I don't know like a tyrannical you know system where it's top down versus you know listening to the people from the bottom up and you can actually do that with any one of those five forms of government in a sense uh, even though one of those is called tyranny um, but but the idea is that you know, you can have an authoritarian system that still listens to what the people are actually wanting and responds to it. So I'm looking at trying to make government more responsive. And that's why I put up this TED Talk by Eric uh, Lee, who is um, uh, educated here in the United States, went to UC Berkeley, worked for Stanford, but also went home to China where he began his, his journey. And so he, he, ta- he talks about how he heard the same fairy tale in China and in the United States about how their political system was the very, very top of the line, you know, newest model, and it's going to be the best of the best of the best. And um, neither one of them is true. You know, if you you have to look at what works and what doesn't work. 
Yeah, for sure. But it was funny when uh, I don't know if you know Ronnie Shang, the the Daily Show. He's like it. Like if we had an Asian president, he would just go down the list of things that are working and not working. And then he's like, okay, that's working. That's working. That's not working. Make it work, damn it. Oh, this isn't working. Like slap these guys around. Like hey, get to work. And it was so. And and I'm like, damn, he's talking about Andrew. Yang. Yeah, he he literally was. He actually said he was campaigning for him after a while. He he just straight out said, "Yeah, I'm campaigning for this guy." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder how Andrew Yang would handle if Andrew Yang was our president, which would be great. I wonder how he would handle um, these <clears throat> protesters that are protesting the lockdown and right not going to be responsible for a second wave that'll really. Uh, sink our proverbial battleship here. How would he handle that? How do you think he would uh, uh, deal with this when you've got people saying, oh, the coronavirus is a hoax and these are fake well, doctors and fake nurses. These are people that are blocking hospitals. I mean, if, if we already had like our UBI, uh, probably they wouldn't be in that kind of mental state, but the ones that that are they would say okay you you really have no right to do this because you are like getting the support you need like you're not it's it's not like you'll you'll starve and you'll have nothing but we can't say that because we aren't doing a ubi so and maybe maybe with a ubi people would be less sympathetic to these people and these people would have less excuse to do what they're doing but since we don't have that it's, it's just well the, the other thing too that i always wondered is you know these are people that are driving expensive suvs and trucks to these protests they're bringing expensive guns to these protests if you're really that hurt yeah. economically um why the fuck are you spending money and time you know traveling to go um with your guns mm. in your four by four suv to protest, um, you know, a public health directive because state house. Yeah, they're, they're pathetic because it's why, like... Why are they not standing with us when we are saying, hey, look, you know, let's get everybody a basic income so that, right. you know, we can minimize, you know, the pain it, here. And it's like these guys, yeah. they've lost the plot, man. <laughs> well, well, well um, the, because of their spending habits... And they're just, they're just really pathetic. They, they just want to be like, oh, but I want my hair cut, or I want, you know, I, uh, something. Like, uh, like, my wife has to do her nails, it's not fair, or something. But it's, it's like, and maybe they just don't know about us and UBI and Andrew Yang. Maybe, maybe they're just, they, they just haven't heard of it yet. I don't know. I um, mean, considering... Oh, just on, you're back, probably, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Considering most of these people probably listen to uh, conservative pundits who are enabling their fear, like uh, Mr. Yeah. Alex Jones and Rush Limbaugh, I would not be surprised if they have not heard about Andrew Yang. Or I don't if they think have. Andrew Yang has been inter on an interview with Alex Jones. You are correct. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, the only politicians that those uh, pundits care about are like Pelosi and Biden and Hillary Clinton. Those are the only ones. And Hillary Clinton has nothing to do with anything right now. Oh, and Obama, who also has nothing to do with anything right now. 
Yeah, they they should probably stay out of it more than they like. <laughs> Hillary did come out and say a few things and, and get everybody all riled up. But um, also now we've got these people calling for the boogaloo. Have you heard of this? No, I have not. Yeah, all right. I well, have. I put up a little article here because they were there was some watchdog group that's been saying we've been monitoring things that go on online, and we notice that there's this word now that people are organizing around. It sounds like a, you know, kind of a silly word, but people are making memes, they're making merch, they're getting, um, they're using this word to find each other, and it's going, and the idea is that there's going to be an inevitable second civil war, which is going to have to target um, liberal political opponents and law enforcement, and they're going to have to force the government, right, through the use of guns and militias, to um, protect their Second Amendment rights and to and to become um, the better government, because they don't believe that politicians will ever vote themselves out of office, right, or write laws that that end their that cause uh, term limits to to cause them to lose their jobs. That they will always protect the oligarchy or they'll protect the um, corporate interests, and that's why, like, uh, our democracy is not functional right now. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about uh, the quote-unquote second civil war that is inevitable. I, I don't think that we're going to see such a scale as the first civil war. It's going to be a lot more diplomatic, um, probably a lot more boycott, um, political advertisements. But if it gets to violence and riots, you're just going to see spurts of that. I don't think it's ever going to get really organized to what we saw like in the first civil war where the North and South had individual armies. I mean, you say that, but you also don't realize how well armed a lot of these right wing militias are. Some of them do have tanks and they will try to take over probably smaller cities, but they definitely are going to, you know, wreak havoc and try and, you know, bring up their bullshit. And it's going to get bad in a lot of places. It's going to be like Far Cry 5. <laughs> Thanks for saying it before I did. But yeah, oh. and lovely lovely for you to mention that because that's based in Montana where I'm living now. And I know right, people yeah. like that who have a lot of heavy armaments for no fucking reason. They <laughs> so raise cattle. They don't to need say, they so are. Not just Texas where I live. <laughs> so, so, so I guess Far Cry 5 isn't too far from reality. <laughs> we are in the darkest timeline. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But the I mean, Far Cry 5 was a cult. Yeah. I think there have been more people prepping for this war than uh, people prepping for the COVID-19, honestly. Well, I yeah, know. I would 100% agree with that because COVID-19 came out of nowhere. But it shouldn't. I mean, I'm trained as a biologist, part. and I think my entire life we've known that you know, you could have a really bad influenza style, you know, type of infection that could spread around the world with all this globalism, everybody flying around in these tiny little boxes that you breathe the same air in. I mean, it's obvious that it was going to happen. And so we've had 30 years to prepare for it for at least since I was going to school. So very strange. When I say inevitable, I mean our government, because the past administrations have successfully squashed pandemics from reaching the American shores because they actually thought critically about what the biology was doing 
and how we were getting attacked by a biological agent. Uh, this government has no concept of defending a biological agent, even when he was trained over and over and over again. Because no, the ego is getting in the way. He, no, we have, ego. we have a government that says, uh, hey, uh, don't wear masks and uh, get lots of bleach and Lysol and uh, try uh, UV, UV ultraviolet light probes. In the <laughs> and there are people that are... That's how we started our conversation. <laughs> Everything comes back to the UV bulbs up your ass. Yep. And me, you know, everybody was shocked when back was, oh God, it was about 30 years ago, there was a new pastor from Philadelphia named Jerry Penicoli. He was taken to the hospital for a gerbil in the butt, you know, he was a perverted thing with gerbils in his butt. Why gerbil up his butt? You know? Well, they said that since Trump made those remarks, that uh, nurses have reported that, you know, more people are going to ask them about whether they can use Lysol or bleach in some way, (laughs) (laughs) which is, uh, you know, the late night hosts are saying, um, well, at least they're smart enough to ask and not just take that advice directly. So, So isn't it so obvious why China is beating us? Like, what, what is our national IQ compared to their national IQ? It's not a matter of It's organization. It's a matter of, for the past 45 years, our public education system has um, disintegrated. <laughs> it has been under attack. And a lot of this was promoted through, you know, with a lot of propaganda-like uh, stuff to get the people to go along with this. And I talked about it in one of the articles I wrote on neoliberalism, where I cited, for example, the movie Teachers, uh, which was, a, you know, from, the, from 1984. It was a movie that um, actually drew on the worst stereotypes of te- high school teachers in the public school system. That it, it took real, actual examples of things where public education was failing people, mm. but it yeah. magnified it even more to basically attack teachers and attack teachers' unions and, and to make teachers in public schools look bad. Oh. And, and people... You know, a, a lot of this stuff, you know, when they say art imitates life, um, there was a lot of, there was some truths to that movie, which was a comedy, but it got blown out of proportion and used as propaganda as one of the many propaganda tools used to sabotage the quality of public education to mm. the point where, no, it, it's not a matter of IQ, it's a matter of... The, the public education system has been deliberately dumbed down to the mm-hmm. point where even if you have a smart kid in a public school system, if you have teachers that believe in, in bleach enemas and UV light enemas up the butt, <laughs> okay, that smart kid is fucked with his pants up and no kiss, okay? <laughs> So nobody can say that our program is tagged for children. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know. Excuse my French. I'm sorry. That's okay. We 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 love you. At least we can laugh. You know. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm actually a a homeschooler um, by philosophy. I'm actually closer to the unschooling groups 
and I'm really more of an unschooler, which was a philosophy brought about by this uh, man, John Holt. And I'm putting uh, that link in there for people. So he used to, he write, uh, they have a, they, he founded uh, the Growing Without Schooling magazine. And he said that self-directed learning was being done mm-hmm. away with. You know, when yeah. you put people in these uh, regimented schools, the teachers literally have to plan every 10 minutes of, their school, of your school day in 10-minute increments. Because if you have a classroom of 20-something students and you have nothing for them to do for about 10 minutes, they just start, you know, climbing the walls. They turn into monkeys. <laughs> you know, and and you have to plan these things for them, and that means that some committee somewhere has decided what every single child needs to know, right? Um, go every, to hell. In order to pass this year, and so you just uh, and if you think about that, that's a factory churning out product, right? You know, and there's also another John John Taylor Gatto. He talked about it. That's what? true. That's right? true. You know, yes. and and even the TED talk with the English guy, Sir Ken Robinson. Schools kill creativity. Like, yeah, it's 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 as clear as day. <laughs> it's, so a like the, product. Product. it's a market-based approach to education. That's a good. I'm glad you uh, touched on that. As a product of the United States education system, I can say that I self-directed a lot of my own learning. Thankfully, good. I was interested in things, and thankfully, there was actually a. Uh, Couple books in the library that I could use to self educate myself. Not only that, uh, my grandmother was wise enough to get us an Encyclopedia Britannica collection for me and my siblings when we were young. So that way, you know, in the age before computers, yes, we didn't have internet when I was a kid until I was in high school. Uh, we had to actually do our research papers out of, you know, encyclopedias and books and shit. So. You know, I had, you know, done research. It's like, oh, I like this thing. Oh, I like this thing. Let's look it up. I fall into the same habits now, though, even though Wikipedia isn't the greatest, you know, most peer-reviewed for all this, it's still good to get a basic, you know, clarification of some things every once in a while, especially if you're just looking like, okay, I'm watching this documentary. Who the hell's this person and what do they do and what are they associated with and it's a lot of you yeah, know uh, going writer. to my phone and doing shit while I'm you and, know watching things. And you you know what what else? I think it's a better idea that we just get all the money and property taxes that go to schools and just give it to a UBI. <laughs> ah, so. right. Well, I mean the okay. So the back to that Wikipedia thing also is that um, the writers are go mostly uncelebrated, but. You know, we really should thank them more because they're people who are constantly, you know, on on top of their topics and writing and making sure that people don't go in there and just break stuff and put random, you know, terrible, uh, stupid things in there to to break the whole system. Um, So I wanted to call your attention to this great speech. If you haven't seen this speech, you've got to listen to it. It comes from uh, one of my... Uh, someone from UC Berkeley again. Um, his name is Mario Savio, and he gave the most amazing speech during a student sit, like a student sit-in type of protest, where he talks about how we have to literally put our bodies upon the gears and stop this machine from moving because we don't want um, we are we are not 
you know, human beings are not products to be created, to be uh, manufactured through this factory system. I mean, and that brings us around to, you know, how with this factory system, not only in education, but the fact that most everything's become factory systemized, even farming. It's like, at what point do we just, you know, take all the profits and, you know, distribute them so that we can replace human labor with labor force that's, you know, actual slaves, i.e. robotics. We we have the technology. Uh, My cousin works uh, for other relatives of mine at their farm in, is it Nebraska or Missouri? Somewhere down there. Um, But they have a large, like hundreds and hundreds of acres farmland. He, they were smart enough to buy the latest model of combine that is basically autopilot. You know, you draw your, you draw your little pattern on the GPS and it's linked up with the satellite and he just basically sits back, drinks beer, watches, you know, TV and lets the damn thing do its thing. The only reason why he's there is in case it breaks down. Oh, um, yeah. You, you know, it's funny, like, we're talking about factories and, like, repeatable processes. I don't know if you any of you actually heard about the uh, Dead Rising games. It's about, like, fighting zombies, but in the latest yeah, installment... That. They they said they they like like the, this this military person admitted that that the zombie outbreak happened was because like the government or some corporate interest just wanted a way to like create cheap labor, but it all went out of hand. It was Have you seen Shaun of the Dead? Right. Oh yeah, that's a great yeah. movie. I love I love the humor in it. <laughs> It's a parody yeah. of Dawn of the Dead, which was the seminal, you know, everybody agrees, the, the zombie movie of all time that, that then became like the, you know, sort of how everybody thought of what zombies were. Yeah, think about right. the subtext of the zombie, the theme of the monster. It's this mindless horde that just does damage and doesn't know what it's doing. It just consumes, right? Right. And there's, you know, obvious parallels. That's obviously why the zombie is such a popular monster today in our modern culture. They are right. so relatable. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> two more, two more yeah. films yeah. on the film up slash former animator here. Um, if you want to really get into some philosophical things about our uh, mechanical factory-based society, uh, two good films to look into would be They Live and... Uh, crap, what was the other one? My brain's having a fart right now. Network. Network. Uh, oh, yeah. Those Network are two, those are two good ones. Thing. That that's the Howlet Eight thing. That's why I'm going outside to Howlet Eight because of Network. Because in Network, he calls for people to go outside and just start yelling from their windows that we will not take this anymore. Is that right? I'm mad as hell. And I'm not gonna take it anymore. Yeah. Oh my god, I love your yell. Do it again. My god, that was awesome. Take it. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take it anymore. Also, yeah, that's you know kind what? of funny. I, what was that, Jacqueline? Say that. Yeah. Was Jacqueline the one singing fucking Twisted Sister? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> D. Snyder, if you have ever listened to any of his interviews, he is the most intellectual motherfucker that you could listen to talking about, you know, the record labels being corporate bullshit, you know, talking about, you know, how... All these politicians are terrible and they're trying to, you know, censor things without actually understanding or knowing what it is. And then we've got 
you know, the fact that other artists like Henry Rollins has done, you know, uh, spoken word albums, which is basically just him, you know, giving philosophy and intellectual discussion to himself. It's like people say that metal is for so many people that are just dumb and don't want to do anything. And yet you look at the actual like artists and talk to them behind this behind the scenes when they're not on stage. And so many of them are very, very, very intelligent. And if I would recommend oh, yeah. any series of books for you to read, as far as to know just how intelligent though crass uh, a, a musician could be, read anything that Corey Taylor has written, the lead singer of Slipknot and uh, Stone Sour. That dude has some serious, like facts of life. You know, sins aren't sins. <laughs> you know, religion is just fucking hypocrisy you know, with examples type of stuff. It's just great. Well, also, um, I was going to say, since you brought up D. Snyder, there's also when he testified before uh, Congress against the PMRC. Yep. I remember that. I, I was, uh, what was that, 88? I was like two years old. Yes, the PMRC. Happened. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, the I was PMRC was an organization started by Tipper Gore. It was uh, bear, uh, basically parents and mothers against uh, metal. Oh, you know, yeah. I remember that fiasco. <laughs> you, you, you know what's funny? Like, if, if Yang were actually president, I'd say... Tipper Gore, Tipper Gore had her ass in, in an uproar because she thought, you know, that the Gen X and the rest of the, you know, back when my generation was the youth, that, you know, we were just being corrupted by the likes of Twisted Sister and ACDC and, you know. <laughs> yeah, she was particularly horrified by Prince. <clears throat> yeah. Ariel, you have the floor. <laughs> oh, I was saying, like, if, if we actually had a Yang presidency and a UBI, I'd say, I'm as happy as heaven and please just keep giving me more. <laughs> Give me money! <laughs> I will spend it and boom the damn economy. No, like, like the, no, the funny thing is, is like there is an antidote to this virus. There's a cure, but we keep like like ignoring it or you know downplaying it because people are fucking stupid. That's all. I see, I Angelo say. has arrived. Uh, welcome, Angelo. You're just a little bit late, but it's okay. <laughs> oh, I've been here since the start of the show. Have you been? You you weren't here when I was trying to do the introduction, so I just I did not. You've been so quiet. You have not said much. Is there anything you wanted to say? Um, no, not really. Just kind of listening today. Cool, cool. Okay, well, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot. I really thought you just arrived. I just wanted to make sure you had a chance to say anything <laughs> uh, you had you'd wanted to say before the show uh, concludes, which is going to be in about 15 minutes. So, all right, sorry for interrupting. Let's move on to whatever. I know that a lot of people to. are not uh, going to be watching the Twitch. They're just going to be listening. So, I wanted to read that little bit of that speech. I just think it's so amazing. It's not going to be in Mario's. Uh, Mario Savio's voice, but you know, he says, There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, the, to the people who own it, 
that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. And I think that's really good for our today, the, you know, uh, solidarity with labor today and uh, keeping with that general strike. I mean, I, uh, I took part of my little break to go get the mail and also to call my representatives because dealing with someone who is as neoliberal as our mutual acquaintance, Steve-O, um, it, it just, it infuriates me that people think that just because Biden has cleared the air about the sexual assault things makes him instantly a good candidate. It does not. His policies are still shit. That has nothing to do with his policies. He's still not actually been investigated for it either. He just said that there was nothing that happened. And you know who else said some, that nothing ever happened? Bill fucking Clinton. And we found that was false too. So, you know, but I called my representatives because right now Congress is on recess. Why? Because they're fucking lazy. They said that they need to do shit. They were up until three in the goddamn morning passing trillions of dollars of relief for corporations and Wall Street. But when they fucking have two minutes to goddamn think about the people who vote them into office, they go on goddamn hiatus and seclusion back to their goddamn homes when they're like, oh, there's a pandemic. I can't vote. I'll be putting myself at risk. That's your fucking job, you know? And so I, you know, cleaned up my language, but I did call all of my representatives, my uh, congressional representative and both senators from Montana, and I told them that they're not doing their jobs, that 5,000 lives have been lost in the last couple of days that they have been on recess and that blood is on their hands and I demanded that they vote for $2,000 a month UBI until this is over. This is like the freaking fourth or fifth or sixth week in a row that I have called them at least once if not twice a week demanding fucking UBI because these people are so stupid. They're like reopen the economy reopen the economy uh, give unemployment benefits. It's like, what about the people who don't qualify? What about the people who are working three part-time jobs because no one will hire them full-time because they're cutting fucking costs and trying to, you know, uh, keep people from having benefits because if you hire someone full-time, you have to have benefits. You're like, that's the worst thing about fucking the bullshit conservatives put in to the Obamacare legislation that they allowed to the Dems allowed to fucking go was the stupid requirement for employers to have insurance and shit. So that made it so that then because the insurance from uh, employers was basically a forced option, people had to go with their employer's insurance. And then the employers were like, ah, no, 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 we don't want to pay your insurance. So you're not going to get enough hours to get insurance. It's just a bunch of bullshit, neoliberal bullshit. Yeah, we we all we Thank all can agree on that, and that's why we cannot <laughs> vote for Joe Biden under any circumstances. Um, everybody, the, tell everybody. Well, what what we can do, I think, if we want to be smart and strategic about this, uh, that Trumper for Yang guy, we should just get more conservatives to like like we kind of got it on the Democrat side, and Tim Ryan is you know talking about it, but then when Nancy Pelosi just made a peep about it, people like Scal- Numscalise and all of his friends like went crazy and went like, no, no, we can't do that. So so we can we can get like more like the Trumper for Yang and people like Fred the Felon lean a little more libertarian conservative. We can try to get more of them on board, and we can. I mean, really we got Dan, right? 
exactly. We just need to get more. We just need to make the case to more of those people because I think we, we got a good amount of weight on the Democrat side. I mean, when you look at about that, yeah, I was going to say the Democrats, I think the left as a whole is so fractured and looking for purity tests that I, I, I think that statement needs a reevaluation. I'd agree with Sharon on that. I would definitely agree with Sheridan on that. Um, well, it, the problem I see right now is that uh, didn't Andrew Yang just sue the sue the state of New York for um, not uh, holding an election, like a primary election, because basically everybody has dropped out of the presidential race, and so you've got only one choice. <laughs> well, there's also down ballot primaries. Yes. That's true, but um, but their given reasoning is that uh, why are we endangering people to go out to vote and doing all this work when there really isn't a choice on this particular issue anymore? Mail in ballots. <laughs> right. I think also a situation with the uh, the primary in New York is they didn't cancel. <clears throat> excuse me, they didn't cancel the other primaries. They only canceled the presidential one. So when they're claiming that they're doing it and you know for uh, for people's health. Uh, well, frankly, that's fucking bullshit. Why? Well, if, if they were so concerned about people's health, then why the fuck didn't they pass the UBI and counter these, you know, idiots who are demanding we reopen the economy with, okay, let's get automation fully up to speed so that the uh, economy can be reopened, but without relying as much on human labor, and let's focus more on you know, letting people participate, having people participate in the economy as as consumers, as small business owners, and as investors, and as traders. You know, uh, th this idea that people have to sweat, you know, have to, you know, work for an employer or else, you know, doesn't matter if they can't or if they're disabled or if it's just not freaking practical for a myriad of reasons. That they, they should just be left to starve and die is bullshit. And that whole ideology co comes back to people who point to their Bibles and point to Second Thessalonians verse, you know, uh, three ten. Those who don't work shall not eat. You know. Well, it also has a more modern uh, iteration. But that was also in the context of the Malthusian trap. Uh, back when the Bible was written. You had to work to feed yourself. Now we have machines producing so much more food. Only 2% of people in the entire American Federation calls themselves farmers. Yep. But yet we have, we have this uh, idea that the majority of people seem to be okay with, you know, and it's like I said earlier, you know, first they, you know, they, they said they had no desire to hurt the, quote, deserving poor, but then they soon decided that no one who was poor was deserving, and that's where this entire destructive, uh, I'm not even going to say counterproductive, it's just outright destructive um, uh, blowback is coming from, and opposition to UBI is coming from, even though UBI is really the most sensible, sane solution you know, uh, to these problems that we are facing. And we know this. We I know got, I, I got a couple of words for you. Tea Party, Ayn Rand, and Atlas Shrugged. Oh, man. <laughs> the 
those, that is basically those are almost the exact, words that is the exact <laughs> reason why a lot of these people went from saying, oh, we don't want to hurt the deserving poor to no poor is deserving. Because that very far right ideology of Ayn Rand has seeped into the Republican Party over the last 40 years, slowly but surely. And not only that, because of how hard it has been seeping into them and into the lobbyists and the corporatists, it's also seeped into the DNC and become just this festering bullshit of pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you're fucked. And it's bullcrap because, you know... My grandmother is over 70 years old. She works part-time at Walmart because, well, she'd be bored as shit if she was at home, for one. And for two, she doesn't get enough from her Social Security from working since she was 17 years old at many factories in my hometown to uh, actually pull in a decent livable wage. And then my mother is working at Home Depot, which is also open. No one's wearing masks. They don't have any sort of PPE protection for any of the employees. And she's basically had chronic bronchitis that might be uh, related to COVID since February because uh, they tested her for flu and it was negative. But they don't have any COVID tests in my home county where I uh, come from in Minnesota. There's no tests. There's no testing. The only people who can get them is uh, hospital workers. Either. Well, yeah. there's also, and in, into what you're saying is, Don, there's also the additional thing that the talk of about poverty and you know and the, the problems that you know of, of you know shifting the, the blame for poverty onto the squarely onto the shoulders of the poor has has been racialized and even people who think themselves to be progressive who really are not are saying shit like on the slate that there's no excuse for any white person in America to be poor the system was designed to prop them up bull Shit. Yeah. Now, this is the kind of bullshit that I've been calling out. Um, I was slugging it out on Slate yesterday, as a matter of fact, and dressed this guy down publicly. And I said, you know, if, if you want to see Trump get reelected again by a landslide, please continue repeating your verbal sewage. You know, because you're going to piss off and alienate you know, all, all the, the, the people living below poverty that are literally struggling for their fucking lives, you know, who are sick and tired of being told that, you know, they're privileged. This is not, this is not conducive to progress. So this, I, this we were talking uh, in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and this far right um, perspective is akin to eugenics it's economic darwinism and it will become a filter for our species if we allow it because the poor are just regular people and they have a broad array of innate traits that they have been able to evolve with to this point and if you exile them we may select out something that our entire species needs in the next 50 years I mean, I come from a, pa a family of working poor. My great-grandmother and great-grandfather great -grandfather were, you know, married um, around World War II. Both grew up in the Depression, dur uh, during the Depression in Nebraska. Um, both were, you know, sharecroppers. You know, they helped farmers. 
during the Dust Bowl and stuff like that. And the thing with all of that is that, you know, that work ethic, that, you know, agrarian society, they moved to Minnesota because of, um, you know, cost of living, um, the fact that there was uh, more opportunities, etc. And they moved to Minnesota, God, uh, it was around the time my mother was born. So that would have been 1966. And so like they, they were in Minnesota and when they were doing that stuff, they were still poor. I mean, they had to switch from being farmers to being, you know, retail workers and working in factories. And a lot of the, a lot of the factories that my family's worked in, um, in Minnesota have either folded and been shipped overseas during the eighties and nineties. Um, or they slowly, uh, started getting rid of any and all benefits for, um, their workers. My grandmother worked for 15 years for a factory in my hometown, uh, called Northern Contours that makes, um, particle board, uh, furniture, particle board, shelving doors, and, you know, she worked for them for 15 years, 40 hours a week on the evening shift from like 2 p.m. to like uh, 2 a.m., 12 hour shifts, uh, five days a week. I mean, she made decent money, but the thing was is that they slowly started taking away all of her benefits, her insurance, her paid leave time, you know, because they kept, you know, trying to cut costs and increase profits, cut costs and increase profits. And then eventually she just fucking quit. And since then, she's been bouncing between what few retail stores are left in that town since, you know, Walmart exists and has been driving everywhere else out of town and the other places have slowly gone the way of, you know, Kmart and just closed up shop. So it's like, it's not that my family, it's not that my family's been trying to be poor. It's that they just, you know, have been getting fucked by their places of employment so hard over the past, you know, 30 years. And they're so loyal to their employers that it's like, no, they didn't ask to be, you know, poor or barely above poverty line, but that's the way it is. That's well, how, we, how it was yeah. for my husband's family as well, Dizdon. My husband's family, you know, um, same thing. He came from rural, rural generational poverty. Um, and it, it was the same thing. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, that, you know, we've always had, you know, poverty in this country where people, and it, you know, to, to say that it was just along racial lines, you know, it, is is that's what is used to often um deliberately derail any honest conversation about poverty the other thing that they use to derail is the fact that they try and say that everybody who's on welfare or food stamps is a drug addict yes yes well, so we can we have identified one of the serious problems here is that we spend a lot of time arguing between the employers and the employees we've got the you know unions fighting the the big uh corporate interests and stuff but actually what we need to do is realize that everybody is playing their part in the economic system that we have created and that we keep supporting by saying capitalism is the best of the best of the best you know and so if we just what we need to do is look at the regulatory environment right that controls all of these interactions 
and create new systems that actually work for people and stop labeling things. You know, we're going to label this far right. We're going to label this far left. Then we're going to label this socialism. And then we're going to label this, you know, it's labels are what divide us. What we need to do is take a look at those problems, like Ariel says, take a look at the problem and actually fix the problem, find the solution, engineer that solution. Well, I think the solution that you're, sorry, what? Oh, I was just saying it's a, it's 12, so we're about, we're at time. But yeah, go on, Sheridan. Um, what you were mentioning, Faye, I think could be simplified to the overall economy orientation with the American scorecard. If we had those measurements that people actually could connect to, and more importantly, when we put tax incentives for businesses to capture, we will really start to see the changes you're talking about, regardless of the regulatory uh, framework that we currently have. Exactly. And the politicians are happy when they keep us fighting each other, you know, the employer of employee, when in fact our interests should be aligned, right? If our business does well, we should do better and vice versa. But it's not aligned because of the corporate problems, I mean, not the corporate problems, but the, the, um, the regulatory problems that we've created. We've created a lot more than just that as far as problems. I mean, we, we've got a lot of shit to unpack from our collective knapsack. That's true. And uh, this whole, uh, the primary being, the presidential primary being canceled over in New York is not the only primary that's been canceled. A lot of uh, Republican primaries were canceled because, you know, there's nobody else going but Trump and we know it. <laughs> you know, the other yeah, people was... are just there for, for show. Like we have an alternative that you could vote, but nobody's going to vote for you. So, yeah, that was huge news. Like, um, in late 2018 that all the southern states just canceled the republican parties of those states just canceled their primary and nominated trump yeah even though there was like one or two people who came out as you know trying to oppose trump and trying to be the nominee instead of him because they realized just how bad he was for the republican party yeah, well, the thing is, if they cancel all of these primaries, we've already had a situation in 2016 where they took it all up to court, and the court said, hey, the original party system was the parties get to decide. You could, they could literally be in the smoky back room making their backroom deals, and nobody's going to say boo about it because the, the, the party decides who gets to go. Just like in a private, um, in a private corporation, you know, they can almost have unlimited powers of who they're going to fire and who they're going to hire. And, and they can Do always... Do you know why you know, that is, why it's very difficult. Yeah. Do you know why that is, Faye? No, please tell me. Uh, we were uh, talking with... Uh, what was it? Tre- Trevor or Trey? Somebody who hasn't been on in a while when, we, when I was still on the Tuesday, when we still did Travis? Tuesdays. Yeah, Travis. There we go. I knew it was a T. Sorry. But uh, Travis said that no, it's not because of anything um, political. The reason is is because the DNC and the GOP are not government entities. They are corporations. So mm-hmm. that's why they're treated the same way corporations are. They can decide who to put up there. And all of this has been just a show. You know, So it's really it's a show. Been. And yeah, we should and- be able to <laughs> sue them. For, you know, being disingenuous about their actual, like, credibility as an entity. Because they are not a government body. 
They are just a corporation of people funneling money into elections and into campaigns and ads. That's so, all that they are. Suing the DNC isn't going to be very likely, but what you likely could do is sue states for allocating the electoral college votes to these private corporations. I mean, that definitely you know, would be when possible. When you talk about these that things... Would be, that, would be, that would be something to, to seriously pursue, I think. But listen to the way that we're talking about it. We're saying, okay, first of all, people don't know what our democracy consists of. So we have the idea that our vote means something. When it doesn't really mean what we think. It's, you know, I do want to be very specific. The, the uh, way that the Electoral College works is only on the presidential level. Every other office is, by first-past-the-post, direct voting of the constituents. When we talk about this, that your vote doesn't matter, it's only in terms of the presidency because of the way our system is built. Just for about the Electoral audience. College, because I actually yeah. like that. I like the Electoral College, and the reason is it was built to make it so that minority states and states that are very rural would have a, a significant voice, and that's how we built that system. What I'm talking about is the fact that we don't choose who is running for president. And so a lot of people are very dissatisfied with the choices that we have right now, and we can't seem to do anything about it. That is exactly the reason that Hong Kong went to protest. They said, well, China, Chinese party is deciding who we can cho choose. So, so we have the same system here. The parties decide who we can choose from. We don't get to decide who, you know, the primary is not a real thing. It's almost like I had to discover this through a whole year of working with, you know, um, this Andrew Yang campaign. But a lot of other people have discovered it through Bernie's campaign or through working with Warren's campaign. And we're all coming to that realization now. Wow. Well, our candidates are not going to be in the running. And they have chosen this person from the beginning. And we all knew who it was chosen. Right. And, and, and not only that, and I, make sure I he gets that nomination. With the uh, Electoral College, we should have it in place, but it needs to be uh, adjusted. I love Andrew Yang's idea of making it proportional to that state's popular vote, because some states actually do have um, Electoral College initiatives where their popular vote will be where all of their Electoral College votes go towards. Isn't like that too California. late if we're told which, which people are going to be on that ballot, as in the New York State uh, you know, situation, or in a lot of these other presidential primaries that were canceled? It's I too late. I completely agree. <laughs> we, we need to give citizens cash to actually pay for their candidate to make it through the mess that we currently have. I think a lot I of mean, those the uh, policies are uh, not even parties. big enough, you know? Like Andrew Yang says, voting is kind of a big deal in this tweet. But see, now once again, we're, he's putting that back on the, just the voting. What about choosing the candidates that you can vote for? How do those candidates get on the ballot in the first place? And then how do they get taken off before you can even vote for them? It's a mystery. It shouldn't be that big of a mystery for us. But, you know, honestly, I've worked with Burke Anderson's campaign a little bit, and I've seen how difficult it is for people to get on the ballot, right? Uh, you have to collect those signatures in some states and other, you know, everything is different in every state, and you have to pay fees. And so that really precludes a lot of people from making a run at all. 
I remember when I ran for mayor in my hometown, I had to pay over a hundred dollars in fees and I uh, had to do all the campaigning myself, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was pretty rough. And that was just for like a mayoral campaign. So, I mean, it's terrible. Well, but, mayors um, don't get paid anything. So <laughs> to oh, do that and then like, you know, oh, have a kind of a, no, not true. Uh, mayors do get paid the, depending on the city, the, uh, city council gets to decide what the, uh, mayoral salary is. And in my hometown, that salary was like $1,200 a month. Okay. But I actually know of cities where, um, it's not a paid position. That's the thing is you have to look around the whole country. It's hard to do that from one place. You have to ask around, and there are there are small towns where the mayor is not even a paid position. It's like a volunteer. Oh, yeah. I, I'm probably living in one of those right now. It's uh, 10 minutes after 12. Do we want to uh, give our, our sign-offs here and wrap it up and uh, see some of you guys tomorrow at the big open discussion, the big open moderator discussion? How do we get yeah, into oh, that? Are we still done, invited to that? Did you say 1200 so, a month? Just, I just want to make sure that that mayor. Yeah, oh yeah, twelve hundred. The, the, the open discussion. The town was thirteen thousand people, though. Oh, okay, that's all I wanted to see. Okay, thanks. The open discussion. Yeah, of course, you're still invited to the open discussion. Uh, that is the uh, the private Zoom meeting with uh, the private Zoom call with o, um, was Ojeda and uh, Broiler is um, is is not the the op- is not the moderated discussion. That's that's a different thing. Okay, so we will find that Zoom link uh, tomorrow. Uh, That's on Sunday. Is it? Um, no, it's no. on Saturday. Oh, it's on Saturday. Oh, my bad. No, I mean, it'll be broadcast on Twitch. So do we, so, but we're not going to come in, we're not going to jump into Discord like we're doing right now. We're going to find no, the Zoom no. link somewhere. No, no, the there's Twitch no link. Zoom link to find. It's not, it's just for people. It's just me, Jeremy, um, Ojeda, and Broiler on Saturday. Okay, so um, so we'll be watching you or listening to you. Yeah, you can. It'll be uh, live on Twitch. Um, but before that, earlier in the day, we have the um, the moderated discussion tomorrow. So, and that's at the normal time. Yeah, that is. Let me just bring up the schedule. Saturday, three to five. Is the open roundtable and uh, Jeremy? What time is the uh, the Ojeda interview? Uh, the Ojeda interview is scheduled for three o'clock. Okay, it's three to five. All right. So, oh, I meant to move the the roundtable up. All right. Sorry, I got I got confused with what week that was. Oh man. All right. So, I thought that that three to five interview was next week. All right, so I guess we're not going to do the um, the the open roundtable three to five tomorrow. I don't know. Do we want to do it earlier or later? I'm down um, to day one to three. That works for me. All right. Um. Yeah. So I'll 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 be in I'll be in the uh, the Discord. Do you want do we, does one to three work for you, Jeremy? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, um, We'll I, I, think we, I think we should probably have like a little bit of time dedicated to you know for setup and make sure our our Zoom stuff is all worked out. So I actually probably... We should probably do it earlier. Why don't we do it like noon? There's uh, something I I'd like you guys to bring up to the attention when you and Jeremy uh, do your thing tomorrow with um, 
Mike Boyer and um, well, you, you can submit a question. I mean, we have a whole list of of, uh, of questions. But yeah, I mean, say it now, please. But I mean, did did you know that you I'd, we've been asking people to submit questions? I don't know if that came through. Uh, no, I'm scrolling up here trying to find it because it's hard for me to keep on top. I was on the Twitter it's one. For, it's hard for me too. It's okay. So, uh, what's your question? We'll okay. ask him. Well, well, the the question I have is, you know, um, you know, holding, you know, what what are they planning to to do uh, to obviate, you know, a problem like what we have right now, where that I brought up in the very beginning of of today, where we've got this boondoggle with, you know, people that, you know, are disabled, they're shut in, they're elderly, rural poor, they don't have a car. They have they're sitting on food stamps that they can't use to buy food. And that this is was considered help, helpful. Uh, and it was a, a measure that cost a, a good chunk of change for Congress to pass, uh, only to end up uh, not really helping you know uh because this is this is kind of serious you know and um i'd like to see something like that addressed i'd like to see that addressed oh yeah that's a that's uh, kind of a central point of uh of both of their campaigns uh was you know bridging the gap with the with between a Income inequality, and I mean, Ojeda has a an excellent history of being a a champion for uh for the underrepresented, the the impoverished, and the and the blue collar working class. Yeah, I mean, it's it because it, it's like like I said at the beginning of this this thing, this is why you know something like SNAP instead of just giving people money is not helpful and can be downright destructive because when you have people that cannot, especially during this current situation with the COVID crisis, that they cannot get in, get into the stores. They can't go to the stores. They're not able to buy food. What good are food stamps if you cannot use them for their intended purpose? It's pointless. Well, that actually is uh, kind of leading into another topic that we actually are going to talk about in the moderated discussion about our food supply. That's right. So I will see, hopefully, uh, most of you back tomorrow, 12, we'll start 12 to like, we'll try to get it done before 1.30. Uh, we might not have time for much of an open discussion, uh, but we'll do the moderated discussion at noon tomorrow. Um you know, actually, you guys can probably kick around, uh, you know, and keep talking while we set up the uh, the, the the Zoom, and we'll switch over to the feed to that at some point. So uh, I will see you guys tomorrow. Um, if you guys want to real quick, just sign off, give your your Twitter, and say goodbye. Uh, starting with you, Angelo. I am Angelo Mendoza. Twitter at Hallian Hellfire. Thank you. Yeah, um, Ariel. Um, my Twitter is Ariel's arm underscore Armada, and you can find me on YouTube as Revolution. Don. Uh, Diz Don, aka Diz Don Plays at Diz Don Plays. It's D I S D O N N Plays. Uh, you can find me on Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, yeah. Thank you, Don. And uh, I think before I forget, I want to have, regarding the Steve-O thing, I want to invite Steve-O to come on. I don't know if he'll, he'll come on.
But I want to invite him to come on and uh, pitch everybody on why they should vote for Biden on Saturday the 9th. Uh, maybe <laughs> before or after we have our guest. Uh, actually, no, I think, I think we have our guest Friday that week. So Saturday we've got... The only got reason open. he's been able to really give me is uh, not Trump. Yeah. Well, I'll invite, I'll invite somebody else then. We'll have a debate on Saturday the 9th. Uh, why should I vote for, for Joe Biden? So we'll invite some people who believe we should. It will be lively, I think. Uh, Faye. Hi, I'm Palis- at Palestine Math, and I would like to invite you all to um, the Game 2020 Slack, which is changing to Humanity First Movement. Um, and they are um, doing a lot of Yang Gang hangs. I think you can find them through Humanity Forward um, right now because I saw a lot of people join from that. And uh, I think our next one is going to be next Tuesday. So if you're free then, please come join us and meet more people who are interested in problem solving. I really the should do that. next actually today. This today? Oh, that's true. There's one today. But, uh, you know, in case you weren't geared up and you don't get to hear the podcast until after today, <laughs> I, I would come to the one on Tuesday. I should really meet some some people there. I really should. I haven't been to one yet. Uh, either today or Tuesday, I really should. Is this a hangout on Slack? A Yang Gang virtual hangout? Yeah. Yep. Uh, hosted by Humanity Forward. Um, I'm actually going to be uh, one of the hosts today. It's nice. at 12.45 uh, to 2.30 Eastern Time. Can you send right. me a link? Because I have not seen that, and I was having difficulty finding different things on Slack. Um throughout the channel structure there. And Angelo, yes. let us know how that goes tomorrow. Angelo, I would like to invite you again to come on that Yang Gang report live to um, teach people how to onboard themselves to the Slack stuff. Oh, certainly. And if we could find one other person, maybe Brendan Carpenter or somebody else, who maybe Gray, who has also uh, suggested he might come, that would be great. We can have a couple of people. Uh, uh, so. yeah, I can talk to uh, Brendan uh, later today about it. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Jacqueline, you want to give your Twitter one more time? I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jacqueline Homan. And I also have a very sparse YouTube channel, uh, Jacqueline Homan. You can follow me on Quora, Medium, Facebook. <laughs> Thank you, Uh, Jeremy. Uh, Thanks to everybody for tuning in today. Um, If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Jeremy Sammons one, and that's S A M M O N S and the number one. And Sheridan. Thank you, Shale. I am Sheridan. You can find me on Twitter at J Saber Gamer. J-S-A-B-E-R-G-A-M-E-R. Thank you, Sheridan. And I am S-H-A-E-L-R-I-L-E-Y, Shale Riley, on Twitter. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Tune in again tomorrow. We're going to have uh, Twitch content tomorrow from noon to about 5. So uh, hopefully I'll see you then. Take care of yourselves. Take care of everybody you can. And be safe. 